Turn back in your Bibles, if you have them there, to Genesis 25. And Genesis 25, our portion for study today, is verses 19 to 26. Genesis 25, 19 to 26. God's choice to save sinners. Some of you with children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, uh, you've probably had the experience of sitting watching a, a movie or a TV show and someone says, can you skip this part? I hate skipping parts of TV shows or movies. Even kids' movies or TV shows, you, you sit down, you have to watch them and sometimes you do get into them and then someone says, can you skip this part? There's a really good part that I would rather get to and, and watch. Uh, we've arrived at a part of Genesis which some of us might be tempted to skip to get to a better part, perhaps, in our minds coming up. In Genesis 37, the story of Joseph begins, one of the most beloved characters in the whole Bible. Joseph's story is one of overcoming adversity, trusting in God almost unwaveringly, withstanding temptation almost flawlessly, and then rising to a position of power gloriously. The story of Joseph is a great story. It's one of the best parts of the whole Bible. But before we get to the story of Joseph, Genesis gives us the story of Jacob. We have a little bit about Isaac, but mostly this is a section on Jacob. And Jacob is a very different character from Joseph. He was, yes, in the end, a believer, but quite often the story of Joseph makes us cringe. Sometimes in the, story of Jacob, sorry, in the story of Jacob, the story of Jacob makes us cringe. And sometimes in the story of Jacob, we'll be wondering whether we should be supporting him at all, whether we're really behind him or not. He does things seemingly without a second thought that scandalize us. His family life at times is like a story arc from EastEnders or Coronation Street. There are chapters coming up that are cringy and awkward and some of the details quite horrible. But we can't skip this part to get to the next part. Jacob's story is as much a part of the perfect, inerrant word of God as the story of his, perhaps in many ways, godlier son, Joseph. And of course, the way to understand all these stories in Genesis is to remind ourselves that they're not really closed stories uh, in and of themselves, but they are all parts of the great story of scripture, the story of God saving sinners. If the stories of Isaac and Jacob and all the mess and melodrama of Jacob's household, if it shocks us, it only reminds us, friends, of how undeserving any of us are of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The stories of Isaac and Jacob from beginning to end emphasize that to us. And so as we begin today, we want to see the clear reminders we have in this passage that God is sovereign in salvation, that when sinners are saved, it is solely, only, purely because God has chosen to save them. And so as we begin today in the story of Isaac and also closely tied to the story of his son, Jacob, we think first of all today of the powerlessness of God's people. The powerlessness of God's people. Look at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. 
And that phrase there, these are the generations of, that, that's Moses' way of telling us that we're entering a new section of the book of Genesis, a book we believe was written by Moses. He uses this phrase 11 times in the book. Uh, and literally the word there for generations, it can mean this is what resulted from. And so Genesis is moving to show us, having shown us what resulted from Abraham and from Ishmael very briefly in chapter 25, we move now to what resulted from Isaac. But notice too in verse 19, the name of Abraham is mentioned twice in quick succession. So what comes next is very much linked to what has gone before. And we remember what had gone before. Abraham had waited and waited and waited for a son, for Isaac. Isaac was the long-promised son, the son of Abraham's wife, Sarah, the legitimate son through whom the grandsons and great-grandsons of the covenant blessings of God would come. Genesis 21, verse 12, God says to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so Isaac's arrival marks the fulfillment of that portion of God's promises. But there's more at stake even than Abraham's son having children of his own. The book of Genesis, as I mentioned earlier, didn't start with Abraham. It started with Adam and Eve, humanly speaking. It started with Adam and Eve. And a promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the wake of their sin, that a serpent crusher would come, that, that a son born of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that the blessing would come into the world to undo the curse that had come into the world. And again, that that blessing would come through the line of Isaac. And so you would think now as we begin the story of what developed with Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, you would think that we're all set for God's blessings to flow more than ever, for the descendants to come, for the land to be secured, maybe even for the Savior to come. It's so important that they do. God has promised that they will. Instead, what happens? Verse 20. Look at, look at verse 20. Isaac was... 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. In verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. She was barren? No children for Isaac? And, and haven't we gone through this already for long enough? Abraham's wife, Sarah, Isaac's mother was barren. Abraham was 100 years old before Isaac was born. Haven't there been enough holdups and delays to God's promises already? But no, Rebecca, like her mother-in-law, Sarah, was barren. Childlessness is a grief and a heartache under any circumstances, a trial that many couples, of course, including believing couples, have to bear. But how much more must Isaac and Rebecca have been asking the question, what is God doing? when Isaac is God's promised son, when the covenant promises are supposed to be going through Isaac and on to his offspring, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Well, where is the offspring? Where is the next potential, where is the next potential serpent crusher? Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Glance on down to verse 26 when Rebekah finally does give birth to her children, verse 26, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. 
Rebecca was barren for 20 years. One year without a pregnancy became two. Two became three. Three became ten. One decade became close to two decades. What a demanding test of faith. And yet it was a test of faith, friends, that Isaac and Rebecca passed wonderfully. Because look at how they responded to the trial of their childlessness. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Friends, it is no exaggeration to say that is one of the most positive statements about any of the patriarchs in the whole book of Genesis. One of the most commendable things you will read about any of the patriarchs. So often these men make mistakes. Abraham made mistakes. We'll see that Isaac's going to make mistakes. Jacob's going to make a lot of mistakes. Embarrassing, cringy, palm-to-the-face mistakes. But here, Isaac gets it right. Isaac does what Abraham did not do when faced with this same challenge. Remember, Abraham went along with Sarah's scheme to have a child by their servant, Hagar. And surely, friends, one of the things that drove Isaac to pray was the knowledge of the damage his father had done to the family by not praying and by going along with Hagar. Instead of making that same mistake, those same excuses, Isaac prayed for his wife. The language here could even mean he prayed in front of his wife. That is, he prayed in her presence. He prayed with her, not just for her. And Christian men, you hardly need me to tell you this is one of the most vital things we must do for the health of our families, the health of our church, to pray with and for our wives, with and for our children. And of course, wives and mothers, the same for you as well. Sometimes we have to avoid the temptation to offer another of our solutions, to try to fix it all ourselves, and we simply pray. Prayer is an act of humility. It's an acknowledgement that we cannot accomplish anything by ourselves. It's an acknowledgement of our powerlessness. That's exactly what Isaac was doing here. God had made promises. God had made promises to bless Isaac, that Isaac would have covenant children. And for 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah lived with the realization that they were powerless to contribute to that plan of salvation. And so they prayed And in praying, they acknowledged only God can save. Only God can can provide salvation. Only God can accomplish his purposes. Now today, of course, God's plan is in a different phase. God's covenant promises at the stage of history in which we are in are not dependent on one particular child being born, upon uh, one particular family having children, having children, having children. Although, Children, of course, are still a part of God's covenant of of grace. But the one chosen child, the, the one promised single offspring of Abraham has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in him that, as God as God promised Abraham, that all the nations of the world can be blessed. But it remains the case today, friends, that only God can save. 
Only God can cause a lost, a sinner lost in sin, reveling in sin, broken by their sin, to cry out for salvation from that sin. It took a birth in the life of Isaac, a miraculous birth in the life of Isaac and Rebekah for God's salvation to come. It takes a spiritual birth in the life of any sinner for salvation to come. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, physically alive, but spiritually dead. And dead people do not make decisions. But Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 4, but God, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, he says, you have been saved. Or as the psalmist says, salvation is from the Lord. We are powerless. God is powerful. Some of you pray regularly for loved ones, for friends or family to be saved. Keep on praying for them because only God can save. And we're praying regularly for the needs of the church, as I mentioned at the AGM. It's a concern of our session that we would be this year more than ever a praying church. There's things that we want to see happen. There's things that we want to do. There's, there's plans that we have. We are powerless to bring those things about unless we pray. Men to preach, elders to lead, missionaries to be sent. Only God can do it. Only God can save. And equally, if we find ourselves in situations today where our lack of control, our lack of wisdom, our lack of energy has left us anxious, upset, perhaps we are just done out, perhaps in home life or work life or church life we are spent, we should take it to the Lord in prayer. Because only God can save, not just from sin, but from stress, from sorrow, from worry, from heartbreak, from whatever it is that you're facing today. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A test of whether we believe that is whether we pray, whether we pray privately, whether we pray husbands and wives together, whether we pray as families, whether we pray as the church. We are powerless people but we have a powerful God who is mighty to save. So God's, the powerlessness of God's people. Secondly, in this passage, we see God's choice to save his people. God's choice to save his people. Powerless Isaac prays for his wife for two decades, and eventually in God's timing, by God's power, we're told Rebecca conceived at the end of verse 21. Wonderful. The answer to prayer that they longed for children on the way. But as every woman here who has gone through pregnancy knows, a whole different challenge now faced Rebecca. And Rebecca's pregnancy, well, I maybe shouldn't use the word typical. There's maybe no such thing as a typical pregnancy. But her pregnancy was certainly not your typical morning sickness, swollen feet, strange food cravings. Look at verse 22. The children struggled together within her. The word there for struggled is actually very strong in the original. One commentator translates it, they smashed together. 
Very strong word. These two are having their first fight before they even get out of the womb. Uh, And the word here also is the idea of struggling to overcome an opponent. So these twins are at loggerheads before they're even born. Uh, And it's very painful for Rebecca. It's a horrible experience. She says in verse 22, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Her words there in the original are a bit of a jumble. and, And that's maybe how she felt. She can hardly get the words out. Why? Why me? Why is this pregnancy like this? Is it really worth it? But again, notice what she does in the midst of her distress. The same thing that she and her husband have been doing for 20 years. Verse 22, she went to inquire of the Lord. She took it to the Lord. Now, we don't know how exactly the word inquire uh, is used in this way elsewhere in the Old Testament. It would suggest maybe a prophet could be involved, but we don't know that. Uh, Most likely, she did what she had been doing for 20 years already. She simply prayed. And God perhaps revealed his word through a dream or a vision. But the point is that God did answer Rebecca. And and look what he tells her about her pregnancy. Verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. It's next to impossible for us to appreciate how absolutely shocking that would have been for Rebecca to hear. Multiple shocks in just a few words. Even just the first word would have been enough to floor her. Two. Two children in your womb. Remember ladies, no 12-week or 20-week scan in those days. This was the only way that Rebecca would have had any assurance or knowledge that there were actually two children in her womb before they were born two not one so that's what all the extra kicking and moving was about double the kicks because there are double the children and in fact God doesn't say notice that the next shock he doesn't say two children in your womb he says two nations in your womb two separate peoples are going to come from your children So after two decades of no children, suddenly God says the pace is going to pick up. There was only Isaac born to Abraham. There will be only Esau and Jacob born to Isaac. But there are going to be many, many more children to come from these two. And then in the last line, Rebecca gets another surprise. God says, the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. And that just wasn't how it was. In ancient cultures like this, the custom was that the eldest son received the bigger portion of the inheritance and the blessing and the property and so forth. But God says, no, not this time. The older will serve the younger. Shock after shock for Rebecca about what was going on in her womb and what would come from her womb. One of the things God takes great pleasure in doing, friends, is turning our expectations upside down. This is what the kingdom of God, the covenant of God is all about. We'll see it when we study uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount later this year, God willing. Jesus uh, turns expectations upside down. The way that we would have things, the way we might have expected things is not always the way that God does things. And in that flipping of expectations, our God displays his sovereignty. That God is solely and fully in control 
of all things, including the salvation of sinners. Salvation is God's to give to whom and by whatever circumstances he so chooses. Salvation is from the Lord, regardless of male, female, rich or poor, black or white, Christian home or pagan home. Salvation is from the Lord. And God demonstrates that here in his choosing of Rebekah's younger son, Jacob. And God tells Rebekah that before Jacob is even born, I've chosen the younger. Jacob comes out second. Jacob comes out holding the heel of his brother. His name means he grasps at the heel, or it even can mean he cheats. And so it's the unlikely one in many ways that God is going to choose. But Paul, Paul talks about this as we read in Romans 9 verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children, though they were not yet born, and listen, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose Jacob before he was even born, before he had done anything good or bad. And if you're a Christian here today, it's the same for you. God chose you before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose you not because he saw that you would turn out good or after he had seen that your best efforts were pretty good and you were deserving of yourself, not at all, before you had done anything good or bad. And that might not be a popular notion even among some professing Christians. One preacher on this passage said, I thought this was a great illustration, he said, when it comes to understanding our salvation, the theology of the sound of music sometimes has more of an impact on us than the theology of the Bible. You remember what one of the characters sings in the sound of music? Somewhere in my childhood, I must have done something good. Something wonderful happened, has happened to me, and I must have done something to deserve it. That's not what the scripture teaches about our salvation. Scripture teaches that our God is sovereign in our salvation. That God has already elected, already chosen all those people throughout time and history and nations whom he will save. We contribute nothing to our salvation but our sin. He does everything to save us. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice. Notice, my sheep. There are sheep and there are Jesus' sheep. There are flocks, and there is Jesus' flock, a chosen, ordained, set group of people. I give them eternal life, he says. My Father, listen, who has given them to me is greater than all. There are those whom the Father has given his Son, those for whom the Son died, those for whom the Son has provided salvation, and there are others for whom that is not the case. And again, some Christians have questions about this. They would object to this doctrine. They would say, this can't possibly be what the Bible is saying. That God already knows who will be saved. Well then, what's the point in preaching the gospel? Some people have said. To which we respond, God already knows who will be saved. We do not know. We don't know. 
How will they be saved? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the means by which God has ordained that sinners be saved, the preaching of the word. Again, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. When a sinner is saved, it's because they have heard and responded and received grace from their shepherd, their king, their savior. Others would say, well, maybe I've thought about becoming a Christian. I have a desire. I've, I've, I've heard the message. I want to become a Christian. But you're saying God decides. Well, what is there for me to do? If that's you today, you need to know that God has chosen and God does know all who are his. But God also commands you to do something. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. To repent of your sin and receive forgiveness. That is the message that I am duty bound and called by God upon order of Jesus Christ to deliver to you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The first sign of life in a newborn baby is their cry. You want to hear them cry. It's going to be many times in the future where you'd rather not hear them cry. But when they've just been born, you want to hear them cry. Because it means that there is life there. And likewise for those who are saved and chosen before the foundation of the world. The sign of their life is their cry for repentance. God is sovereign in salvation. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. If you do that today, genuinely, humbly, it's the evidence of God having already begun working in your heart, having chosen you before the foundation of the world, before you had done something good or something bad. This also means, of course, friends, that we have no right to ever give up on anybody. We have no right to be thinking, those kinds of people won't be saved. That person could never be saved. We're no point inviting that person to church. God knows those who are his we do not. We are to preach and proclaim with the full assurance that Christ will gather in all who are his. Have you come to repentance and faith today? And if you're a Christian, are you resting in nothing about yourself but in the sovereign choice of God to save you from your sin? What a comfort that is. If he chose you, he's never going to let go of you. The powerlessness of God's people God's choice to save his people, and more briefly and finally, the small, slow progress of God's people. The small, slow progress of God's people. The twins are born. Isaac has sons. Abraham has grandsons. If you do the biblical maths, Abraham was still alive until, I think I checked, it was until the boys were 15. So Abraham lived to see his grandsons born. And the whole household is praising God. And yet, friends, that little phrase sticks out. It struck me again and again this week. So I was studying this passage. Verse 26. Verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Okay, it's not quite what Abraham endured. He was 100 years old when his son was born. But 60 is old nonetheless to become a father. And when he finally gets his children, there's only going to be two. 
And one of them, as we'll see, will have no interest in the covenant promises of Abraham. And it all looks a little small and fragile, especially when you compare it with what we see before this passage. If you look at chapter 25, verses 12 to 28, the generations of Ishmael, Isaac's half-brother. Ishmael was not Abraham's legitimate son through whom the covenant blessings would come. And yet Ishmael has 12 sons. Verse 16 describes them as 12 princes according to their tribes. Ishmael has so many sons and grandsons, they're becoming whole tribes of people. They're moving out, they're taking possession of the land. What does Isaac, the promised son, the covenant son have? He has two little boys and a pension plan. He's a baby daddy in his 60s. Probably doesn't sound too appealing to some of you older men here this morning. The sons of the world, the sons of Ishmael, are prospering. They're growing. They're taking possession of the world. Meanwhile, the sons of God are smashing each other in the womb. And this is something we've been seeing all the way through Genesis. I know it's a while. We've been taking it in chunks and taking long breaks. But if you remember, remember the days of Cain and Abel, the days of Noah, the days of Abraham and Isaac, and now the days of Jacob as well. The people of God have looked outnumbered and overrun all the way through. And doesn't it feel the same for us, the sons of God, the church today? Look what happened just this time last week here in Dremore. We arrived for Sabbath school and adult Bible class and prayer meeting. That car park was jam-packed. Not with people so eager to come to church that they came an hour early, but with people excited to go to a hockey match. Hundreds of people suddenly filling the streets of Dremore on a Lord's Day morning, not for worship, but for sport. Children and teenagers, maybe you're the only Christian in your class. Maybe you're the only Christian in your year group. And we know in Northern Ireland, not just in our own denomination, but across denominations, church doors are closing, congregations are shrinking, the number of vacant pulpits is increasing. And sometimes God chooses to change all of that rapidly, almost overnight. We call it revival. Psalm 126 speaks of it. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Give us a a rush of blessing. And God sometimes does that. And if God wills, next week this car park can be jam-packed again with people who do want to hear the preaching of the word. But oftentimes God chooses not to do that. He chooses the small, slow progress of his kingdom and his church And the world scoffs at it, and the world rejects it. And yet, friends, it is progress nonetheless. God promised Abraham and Isaac offspring. Isaac has offspring. In fact, God promised Abraham's people, the nation of Israel that came from him, a Messiah. And they got a Messiah. Not the Messiah they expected. Not a Messiah who rode into Jerusalem with an army of thousands behind him. But he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with women and little children behind him and 12 very limited disciples. And even most of them abandoned him when a few days later he was led out to the most shameful and pathetic looking thing of all, a cross. 
The point is, friends, the progress of God's salvation might often seem small and slow, but it is progress nonetheless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christian friend, rejoice in any progress you see in your own walk with the Lord. Rejoice even over one lost sinner that comes to repentance. Rejoice not that the world accepts you, but that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice most of all that God is sovereign in our salvation. Amen.